Welcome to the Gospel in Lagos, the sermon podcast of City Church. City Church is a community of worshippers and mission. We exist to catalyze a gospel-centered movement that renews Lagos spiritually, socially, and culturally. You can find out more about us at www.citychurchlagos.com. City Church, love Jesus, love people, love Lagos. Today's Bible reading is taken from 2 Corinthians chapter 9, verses 6 to 15. After the reading of the word, I will say, this is the word of the Lord, and will respond by saying, thanks be to God. 2 Corinthians 9, 6 to 15. Remember this, whoever sows sparingly will also reap sparingly, and whoever sows generously will also reap generously. Each of you should give to give, not reluctantly or under compulsion, for God loves a cheerful giver, and God is able to bless you abundantly, so that in all things, at all times, having all that you need, you will abound in every good work. As it is written, they have freely scattered their gifts to the poor, their righteousness endures forever. Now he who supplies the seed to the sower and the bread for food will also supply and increase your store of seed and will enlarge the harvest of your righteousness. You will be enriched in every way so that you can be generous on every occasion. And through us, your generosity will result in thanksgiving to God. This service that you perform is not only supplying the needs of the Lord's people, but it is also overflowing in many expressions of thanks to God. Because of the service by which you have proved yourselves, others will praise God for the obedience that accompanies your confession of the gospel of Christ and for your generosity in sharing with them and with everyone else. And in their prayers for you, their hearts will go out to you because of the surpassing grace God has given to you. Thanks be to God for this indescribable gift. This is the word of the Lord. Thank you very much, Jumoke, for that reading. Good morning, everyone. It's nice to see, see us all. Um, if you've been here for the last 13 weeks, we've been running a series. And basically, this series is, we're trying to think of who we are as a church. And that is, you know, we've spoken about being a gospel-centered urban church. That is how we identify ourselves. And so in last three months, because today is the final message of that uh, series, the first month we talked about gospel because it's a gospel-centered church but then the next day we talked next month that's october we talked about mission because mission uh, 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 we're gospel-centered urban church so our mission is to an urban context and then finally we've been speaking about community in this month and today is the final message first time we spoke about what a community is people are together and they are devoted to themselves in the second message uh, we spoke about love and how love keeps that community together. And last week, 
Um, we spoke about, what did we speak about last week? I've forgotten. Last week we spoke about the gifts. Gifts of, that the Spirit who brings about this community, He gives to the church in order for us to serve one another. So this week, we're looking at a very, very interesting topic. Now let me start it by talking about, I don't know if you've caught on with the latest saga, is the saga between the daddies. There's a daddy daddy freeze and they are the daddy geos daddy freeze i don't know if you've heard of him is an on-air personality he is the convener of free the sheeple movement and the leader of the free nation you know sort of reminds me of uh, um, our good friend idi amin who had the title his excellency president for life field marshal al haji dr idi amin dada vc dso mc Lord of all the beasts of the earth and fishes of the sea, and the conqueror of the British Empire in Africa in general, and in Uganda in particular. He was also the last conqueror of Scotland. So here we have no ordinary daddy. He is the convener of the Free the Sheeple movement and the leader of the free nation, on the one hand. And on the other hand, it's the daddy geos, right? The big pastors in in Nigeria, and it's all around money. Now, it's been an emotionally charged, drawn-out battle that's caused so much discussion that quite a lot of pastors and members seem to be wading into it. And I'm no exception, so I'd like to have my own take on it. Now, why does this matter much? You see, there are certain hot-button topics that captivate our minds, cyberspace, and more than any, uh, more than any other kind of topic. So when you think sex, Relationships. I mean, if you're a pastor, you kind of want your church to explode. All you need to do is, like, for the next three months, preach a series on relationships, sex, you know, do some single events, all of those kind of things. Why? Because sex and relationships matter. Politics as well. Work as well. Now, all of these things, whether you agree on how people preach it or not, they actually generate our if you like, our, our participation. Why? Because the Bible would actually say that these things are sacred. And so too is money. You see, money is the measure of our physical and mental effort, and the Bible has a lot to say about it too. Listen to this quote by a guy called Hal uh, Durton Jr. He says, Jesus talked much more, much about money. 16 of the 38 parables were concerned with how to handle money and possessions. In the Gospels, an amazing one out of 10 verses, that's 288 in all, deal directly with the subject of money. The Bible offers 500 verses on prayer, less than 500 verses on faith, but more than 2,000 verses on money and possessions. Now, before you say, well, I knew it, Christianity, you guys are all about power. Just like all religion, it's all about power, and because we know money is power, that's why you're all about money. No, Jesus says it's because... Money is a spiritual issue. Where your heart is, that is where your treasure will be also. Or if we are to translate it in more contemporary lingo, it is follow the money. If you really want to know what is important to someone, look at how they spend what they earn. And when we think about it in the context that we've been talking about, which is community, money already started playing a huge role in the early church. So you think about it, um, in Acts chapter 2, the first part where we saw the community gather together, or it says in Acts 2.44, all the believers were together and had everything in common. 
they sold property and possessions to give to anyone who had need. You fast forward to two chapters after that still, verse 32 of chapter 4, all the believers were one in heart and mind. No one claimed that any of their possessions was their own, but they shared everything they had, verse 33. And God's grace was so powerfully at work in them all that there were no needy persons among them, among them. From time to time, those who owned land or houses sold them, brought the money from the sales, and put it at the apostles' feet, and it was distributed to anyone who had need. That was money in community for good. In chapter 5, the following chapter, we see money in community for ill, Ananias and Sapphira. So money plays a huge role in community. Such that if you are not discussing it when you're talking about community, if you're not discussing it when you're talking about the church, it is either bewildering negligence or pompous piety. Why would you skip it? Or, you know, we're very, very spiritual here. Well, that is just being arrogant. And I have to say that, you know, confess, I failed you guys in that. I mean, this is the first sermon on money this year. And unfortunately, it's the only sermon on money this year. But we're working on that. Next year, we're having a whole month dedicated to money. But it's true. I mean, if Jesus is speaking a lot about it, Paul speaks about it as we see in the chapter that we read here today. Then also we need to. Now, here's the thing. Because money is sacred, if it's handled poorly, as many places that we see, then it leads to the kind of thing that should get us nervous. And that's why when we want to talk about money here, we're not just going to be coming, it's not going to be my opinion, but we want to as faithfully go to what the Bible says about money. And so... We want to look at this under this topic that I've called cheerful givers. Now, we're going to find out who these cheerful givers are by answering three questions. One, who are they? Two, what do they give? Three, why do they give? Who are they? What do they give? And why do they give? So let's go to the first point. Who are they? Now, I don't know if you've ever come across people. Have you ever missed a point in something? You were watching somebody crack a joke, and you started laughing, and you realize, actually, no one else is laughing, and you're like, oh, I missed it. Then, when everyone starts laughing, then you're like, eh. <laughs> You start laughing because you didn't really get it. I remember one day, um, this was a couple of years ago, there was a, a young girl, zealous, you know, student girl, probably had just found Christ and is trying to take the whole world for Christ. And on her shirt is written these words. I raised you up for this very purpose, that I might display my power in you and that my name might be proclaimed in all the earth. And she was strutting along, walking down the streets. I don't care. You know, people who are gay are talking about themselves, which we are proud. You know, God has raised me up for such a time like this. I remember looking at her, and it was Romans 19, 7, uh, 17 that was written in front of the shirt, and I was just shaking my head. Oh, my word. How does that Romans 19, verse 17 start? Well, it starts this way. For the scripture says to Pharaoh... I have raised you up for this very purpose. So in other words, God wasn't raising her up, or at least quoting this verse, to actually take over the world. God was raising up Pharaoh to show by the hardening of Pharaoh's heart that he was going to judge the world. 
miss the point. And many times, often, as negotiations, when we come to this passage of scripture, these 2 Corinthians 9, 6 to 15, on money, what often happens, we miss the point. What do I mean? Most times when we read verse 6, we often think that reaping is the gold. Whoever sows sparingly will also reap sparingly. And whoever sows generously will also reap generously. So obviously, reaping is the gold. All is the gold. All I need to do to reap a, an abundant harvest is to sow abundantly. Now, reaping is the goal, but sowing is obviously the means through which we get to that goal. So, of course, you have to sow. If you don't sow, you don't reap. But the point is reaping. And if that's the case, you know, we could read verses 8, 9, and 11 like this. I mean, doesn't it read this way? Abound in every good work, verse 8, that is, freely scatter your gifts to the poor, so that God is able to bless you abundantly in all things at all times, having all you need. Verse 11, be generous on every occasion so that you will be enriched in every way. Is that how he reads? Now, of course, if the point was reaping, if the goal of why Paul is writing is reaping, then that is exactly how that part will read. But a quick thing on how we use the, the grammatical point, how we you know, view this English thing. Whenever you think of a sentence and you want to get, what is the goal of that sentence? Well, look at what you call a conjunction, right? If you have a therefore, right? Therefore, you know, as the preachers often used to say, whenever you see a therefore, you should know why it is there for, right? And whenever you have a conjunction, you know, you should see the goal of the sentence is comes after the conjunction. So if you take something like so that, if I say, Dami read the Bible today so that he can set up Femi to preach. The reason that Dami read was for Femi to preach. And so if we want to know what that passage is all about, well, we can just follow the so that. And there are two so that's there. Look at verse uh, verse 8, and God is able to bless you abundantly so that, what follows after, in all things, all times, you'll have all you need, you will abound in every good work. But what is the every good work? Read in verse 9, they have freely scattered their gifts to the poor, their righteousness endures forever. The free scattering of gifts to the poor. Or verse 11, you will be enriched in every way so that, what? You can be generous on every occasion. Don't miss the point. The goal is not reaping. The goal is sowing. The goal is not accumulation. The goal is generosity. Look, the math does not lie. In this passage, this passage that we just read, there are three blessing references and there are 13 to giving. Which brings me to the crux of the, crux of the debate. And the question can be summed up in this way, really, that has been trending is, are Christians supposed to pay tithes? Are Christians supposed to pay tithes? Now, it may seem like a very simple question, and you may belong to the club that says, I just want a straight answer. Just tell me, are Christians meant to pay tithes? Yes or no? 
Well, I would say, actually, sorry, I'm stepping back from that. I'm not going to answer yes or no, because though it seems to be a very simple question, it's an extremely loaded question. In fact, I can identify three different things there that come in that question. One would be identity, the other systems, and then the other structures. Identity, system, and structures. By identity, what do I mean? Well, the identity issue is whether or not we are to give. The system is speaking of how and what we are to give. Whereas the structures is talking about what the money is spent on and the accountability structures that preserve integrity there. So when someone says, are Christians supposed to pay tithe? Now, if someone should say, if you ask the question, are Christians supposed to pay tithe? And one person says, no. The person who is focusing on identity is hearing that no to mean this person believes that the Bible doesn't tell us to give. Whereas the person that is focusing on structures is saying, oh, you're asking that question. You're saying Christians should pay tithe. I know why. Because one day you want to be a pastor and you want to buy a private jet. Whereas the person that is focusing on systems is saying, no, he's saying that basically I'm not meant to give 10%. I give 8%. It's a very loaded question because most times people are hearing different things. One person is focusing on system, another person is focusing on identity, another person is focusing on structure. And so for us to really understand this, let us look at this passage and we have to decouple all these things. Because putting system, identity, and structure all under tithe will not allow this thing to move forward. Just check some of the debate and just look at how people are talking across one another. Look at the comment sections. So, let's look at the first thing. Identity. Now, I've already kind of laid the foundation for that. You read um, what we said. The goal is not so, uh, the goal is not reaping. The goal is not accumulation. The goal is sowing. The, the, the goal is generosity. Are we called to be givers? Profound answer to that. Very simple answer is yes. Christians are called to give. The question should be though, what kind of givers? Now in this daddy freeze and pastor's feud, you will identify two kinds of givers and Paul 2,000 years ago has already told us who those givers are. Look at the passage. In verse 7 it says, you can be a reluctant giver, or you can be a coerced giver. A coerced giver, that is someone giving under compulsion. He says, deciding your heart, uh, your heart to give, not reluctantly or under compulsion. Who is a coerced giver? Let's take the second one. Well, coerced givers give under compulsion. Why? Because they can believe one of two false doctrines. One, holds on to their hope, the other one holds on to their fear. So if you sow this amount of money, then God is going to open the windows of heaven and you would actually get a whole lot more money than the money that you actually sowed. Hope. The other one is if you don't give this amount of money, well, there's someone called the devourer. He's a nasty guy. Very, very bad guy. He is going to come and he's going to eat everything, even the one you don't have. Your future, the future money you are meant to get, the devourer starts eating all of them. And whenever you work and you work and you work, you'll be putting the money into a bag that doesn't have holes. Beware of the devourer. 
So a coerced giver gives under compulsion, either through a false hope or through fear, false fear. But what about the reluctant giver? Well, the reluctant giver isn't really all about generosity. He's really all about balancing accounts. He's like an accountant, really, when it comes to giving. He's the kind of person who just wants to give just to meet the thing that the need that is there. And let's not give more. He's the one that's always sniffing around. I wonder what they're doing with our money. Hmm. Ah, that pastor, new shoe, Abby. Uh-huh. Is it not our money? Look at his wife. Ah, ah, she's been changing her hair every three weeks. Our money. A reluctant giver. But the Bible says we have to give. If not, that the Bible says we have to give. So you give reluctantly. They hold their money, really, they would say, under the guise of financial accountability and um, preserving the integrity of the church, but really it's because they are saving for holiday in Dubai with their children. Or they are about to change their car that has just been barely one and a half years because, you know, in Nigeria, we we lack maintenance culture, so we need to be changing these things. It's, It's really, you know? Beware of both extremes. Coerced givers and reluctant givers, because you know what? When it comes to the issue of giving, these people are both greedy. They are giving not for what they are giving not out of what they have. They are giving for what they can get or what they have. The coerced giver is giving because he's using the multiplication. You know, you did board mass, right? Coerced givers are thinking about M multiplication. So in one, get a hundred. Whereas reluctant givers, their own focus is on S, subtraction, right? If I give this, that means I'm not going to have this. So how do I maximize what I have? Subtract as little as possible. You see, God isn't giving, isn't looking for reluctant givers or coerced givers. But verse 7, for God loves a cheerful giver. Now, don't misunderstand that thing. Someone once told me when I was in school, he said, yes, 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 God loves a cheerful giver, but he, he, would, he, would, he would accept a normal giver. <laughs> Just give, right? Give, but then work towards being cheerful. That's the one God loves. Now, actually, to say, for God loves a cheerful giver, that's the only giver he's looking for. Because, you see, giving is an issue of identity. You don't give to become a giver. You give because you are already what? A giver. And a true giver gives cheerfully. Not that it doesn't cost them something. Not that it doesn't mean they have to forego something so that it doesn't mean that they won't be able to. Um, because they give, there are certain things they will not be able to do. So it costs them something. They give sacrificially. But even though they give sacrificially, they give what? Cheerfully. You are not just called to give, you are called to be a giver. God loves a cheerful giver. Our identity is one of those who give. And I can celebrate, there are many people in this church, I would say, that look and say, these are givers. They're not just people that are just saying, ah, this is what I'm meant to do. They're looking, givers are always looking for more opportunities to give. I was giving to this person for one year. Ah, now that I've finished giving to this person for one year, they told us it was just one year. I've given to that person. That's it. <laughs> Finally, I got my money back. 
Ah, I've been waiting for this other year to come. Finally, givers are always looking for opportunities to give. They're always asking, hey, okay, the budget, where are we? Just, just this, all we need is 200,000 to cover uh, deficit, Abby. And then say, okay, guys, we need 200,000. Then they want to track, where are we now? 120, where are we now? 150, 180, do you get 200? Okay, fine, so I don't need to give. True givers are always about surpluses. Or just deficits. Now, if that's who they are, then what are they to give to the church? That takes to our second point. What do they give? What do they give? Now, church is meant to be filled with givers, but the next question is the system. So now we're looking at the system. And let me say this straight away. Christians aren't to pay tithes, though they are to give. Christians are not meant to pay tithes, but I must put the caveat, Christians are to give, in case you've missed it in the first one. Now, what do I mean by that? Let me quickly do a small breakdown of what happens in the Old and the New Covenant. The real true God, the only one and living God, has always related with his chosen people through covenant. Now, this covenant is ratified by death, whether it was the old covenant or the new covenant. It says it was ratified by blood. For instance, in Hebrews chapter uh, 9, verse 16, it says, if, oh, I didn't write that one, so I don't have the reference. Anyway, read that. It was actually there. It's ratified by blood. If you go to Exodus chapter 24, where they actually established the covenant after they came out of Egypt, eventually Moses goes, he collects the things from, from um from God, he goes to speak to the people. They said they'll do everything, and then he splatters blood upon the book of covenant and splatters blood on the people. And the same way, the New Testament is established on the death of Jesus Christ. But at the same time, in both covenants, you are now giving regulations for how you are to conduct this relationship with this God. Now, under the old covenant... And you can't be under both covenants. Why? Because they are both established by different kinds of blood or different death. Now, when you come to the old covenant, part of the, the regulations that regulated how they were to relate with God were on the, where they were to give at least two, most likely three, different kinds of what they call tithes, tenths of their income. Whereas in the new covenant, there's something else. But I have to establish this point. If the old covenant was two or three times, why is it that we don't give again under that kind of system? It's very simple. We're not under that covenant. In fact, if you read the book of Hebrews, Hebrews chapter 7 says this. If perfection could have been attained through the Levitical priesthood, and indeed the law given to the people established that priesthood, the law given to the people established that, prince, uh, that priesthood, why then was there still need for another priest to come, one in the order of Melchizedek, not in the order of Aaron? For when the priesthood is changed, the law must be changed also. Or verse, uh, chapter 8, verse 7. For if there had been nothing wrong with the first covenant, no place would have been sought for another. 13. By calling this covenant new, he has made the first one obsolete. And what is obsolete and outdated will disappear. If that covenant has gone, then the regulations that put you under that covenant also are not binding on you. And that's why the system there doesn't 
apply to people who are therefore under a new covenant. Now, the new covenant refers sometimes to the old covenant. That Paul, for instance, in 1 Corinthians 9, verse 11 to, 13, uh, verse 11 to 14, can say something like this. He can say, well, under the old covenant, there were people who were giving front line to the things of God. They were called the Levites, right? And those Levites were supported by the other people who were not giving to those things. So also in the new covenant, those who are in the front line of ministry should be supported by those who are not in the front line of ministry. You see, he is being inspired by the old covenant without being under the old covenant. They are two different things. He doesn't say, this is what you must give. But he says, we can have examples and patterns to follow. Just like 1 Corinthians 10 says, these things were written for our examples. That's different from being under the covenant. But when it comes to us under the new covenant, then how are we to give? Well, there are three things I must say. When it says we should be generous, under, uh, generous on every occasion in verse 11, there are three things you must look at there. We must give preparedly, we must give regularly, and we must give spontaneously. Preparedly, regularly, and spontaneously. First, preparedly. Notice in verse 7 it says, decide what you give in your heart. In other words, if you are convinced about this thing, if you are convinced about it, then you should prepare for it. Conviction leads to preparation. On the one hand, don't be deceived by manipulators, right? Don't be deceived by manipulators. But please, don't be deceived by your own greed as well. It's your greed that tells you, I give, you know, we're not under the law, we're not under the old covenant, so I give as I feel or I give as I'm led. Hey, hello? That's another, that's the, if those ones are the manipulators outside, uh, without, this one is the manipulator world, within. There is nobody I've met that says something like that. We just give, you know, I, because we're not under the law, now we're under the spirit. The spirit tells me when to give, and I just give. Everybody that I've met that's ever said that, they give less than they're meant to give. If you are actually convinced about this, you will prepare what to give. But not only do you give preparedly, you give regularly. Notice Paul says, on every occasion, and in 1 Corinthians 16, verse 2, he told them, he says, on the first day of every week, each one of you should set aside a sum of money in keeping with your income. Now, Part of the reason why you are meant to do this, can I quickly say, is just because why do you give regularly? Because the church has regular needs. Right? We don't say, for instance, in this hall, to the people that have given us this hall, and we've entered a contract, we're like, you know, we are a, we're a New Testament church. We're a new creation church. Your rent is due, so at the end of the month. No, that's law. But we are spirit people. The spirit hasn't told us to give. And he will say to you, the Spirit has told me that you guys should not be here again. In other words, here in the church and all other churches, we have regular needs. And therefore, we should have a regular stream of income for the people that come regularly to the church. You not only give preparedly, but you also give regularly. And then, we are also called to give spontaneously. You see, because if you give regularly, that is in keeping with your income. You get paid like this, you should also give this way. In fact, I forgot to say this. 
Though in the system, in the, in the Old Testament system, God does specify that they are meant to be givers and he specifies what they are meant to give. In this New Testament covenant, God does not specify what we are meant to give, but he expects you to specify what we are meant to give, you are meant to give. That is, part of preparation and regular giving is saying, this is my income, this is how much we are, I'm going to be giving. And for you to stick to it. And obviously, work towards increasing it as the Lord blesses you. God doesn't specify for us what we are to give, but he expects us, he requires us to specify ourselves what we are going to give. Now, you may then say, ah, okay, Brother Emmanuel, ah, so you have this need. Hey, yeah. If you have, you see, the problem is that this is the eighth of the month. And I give in line with my income as the Bible commands. And I give at the first of the month. You are now coming at the eighth of the month. I will have given you, but what the Bible has said, what I have vowed with God to give, I've actually given. Come back next month. Because you are following the Bible, isn't it? Paul says you should be ready to give on every occasion. That includes regular giving and at the same time, spontaneous giving. Why? Why do you do that? Because you are a giver. It comes from within. It is your identity. It's not a substitute for regular giving. That's spontaneous giving. So, if that is the system, then the next thing we should talk about is the structure. Is the structure. Now, how do we then decide who or what the money is spent on? Where are we giving? How do we decide the, what to give on? Now, let me say this. Your generosity is prioritized first to the local church. It is first to your local church. And when I mean by prioritization, I mean two words. Your amount and the regularity. The amount, that is, your bulk amount of giving should come to your local church. It's your priority. And it should be regular. Now you say, ah, ah, this seems very sectarian. There are people all around. If I'm only giving to you, how would, that shows that I don't care for other people. Oh, well, really, is it true? Some of us here are parents, and we have children. And then you have nieces and nephews, and then you have friends that have children. When you are thinking about paying, when you are thinking about sending your children to school, do you take the money that is with you and then say, ah, it would be nice for my child to go to this school. I would really like for my child to go to this school. But you know, Lola's children, they go to government school. And I have to show that I love Lola's children. If I send my children to this school while Lola's children are going to that school, what does that say about me? If you did that, you'd be a very responsible parent, wouldn't you? Apart from the fact that most people just don't think like that. Why? Because your first priority is to your own children, and you think about that in terms of what you give to those children. You will first say, well, I have to take care of my own first, and then out of what is left, I can give to others. I steward it based on proximity. These are my own children, my own flesh and blood. I am not saying that I, uh, I'm not connected to other people, but based on the closeness, the proximity by blood, I am giving to these ones. Now, remember what church is, what we've been saying. Church is community. The local church that you are covenanted to is your family. It's not that there are not many other places that you can give to. We'll get into that. But priority-wise, you are meant in regularity and the amount to put that church first. 
And what do, they, what do they spend money on? Well, we think of the giving channels. So, if we take Galatians 6 verse 10, how do we spend money? Galatians 6 verse 10 says, do good unto all men, especially those that are what? Household of faith. So, you're meant to do good to all, but with a special case for the household of faith. But this household of faith, we can think of as the local church and the wider church. So, the first thing is, where does the money go to? Well, the money first goes to the clergy staff. They're like, huh? I knew it. Yeah, you're like that. The money is coming. So you are making a case that when we give money, they should pay to you, isn't it? Right? That's what you're saying. And the answer to that is yes. You want me to starve? But apart from the practical answer to that is, what does Paul say? Don't you know that those who serve in the temple get their food from the temple and those who serve at the altar share in what is offered on the altar? In the same way, the Lord has what? Commanded that those who preach the gospel should receive their living from the gospel. Go to 1 Corinthians 9, 11. If we have sown spiritual seed among you, is it too much if we reap a material harvest from you? Galatians 6, 6. Nevertheless, the one who receives instruction in the word should share all good things with, the, with their instructor. What's going on? Actually, it's community again at work. Because what Paul is saying is this. Some people, for the flourishing of the community in terms of their learning, in terms of their development, some people have to be given more exclusively to certain things whilst the others are given to other things. It's not trying to Exalt some people above some others because we understand that in Christ we have the priesthood of all believers. Jesus did not die more for Toby than he died for me. Jesus did not die for me more because I'm a pastor than he died for Victor. So we're not talking about value here. We're talking about a diversity of roles. And so for someone, for people to be given exclusively to the ministry, whether it's preparation of the word or whether it's the people that are uh, uh, doing the design like Tomua does for us here, or whether it is people that are given to operations like Ibukun helps us run the operations of the church, for those people to be able to do those things so that when you come on Sunday, all things are going well, and when the gospel community, you are meant to have that, some people have materials, for those people to do all those things so that you can benefit, those people should be given to that. So you go and work, earn the money, bring it into the church, and in that way there is reciprocity. That's how community works when it comes to money. So Paul is saying, how do we enable this community to work in terms of, our, or in terms of money? Because there are needs that are need to be met. Well, not everyone should be working for the church, but some need to. And so the first thing that the money is spent on is obviously spent on staff. And then there are other things as well. There are members in need, like I was referring to the other time. There are people who will be in need in the church. Some people don't have jobs. Or some people, the jobs that they have now cannot really meet their basic needs. And one John says this, you don't say to, you don't look at the brother and say, um, well, uh, well, well, this is a combination of one John and, and the book of James. But you don't look at your brother and say, ah, what's going on? You've not eaten a year, let me pray for you. When you have the ability to meet that need. He says, if you say that then, how can you say the love of God is in you? So we meet the needs of members, and, at the same, and finally, we also meet the mission and the justice initiatives of the church. The mission of the church, the ministry of the church, Acts 13 verse 2, they prayed, they called, the Spirit called out Barnabas and Silas, 
for the work of ministry. And it then says in verse 3 that the church then sent them. That sending them is not just sending like that. They also provided for them. So if that's the local church, then there's the issue of the wider church. The context of this particular passage that we are preaching on is Jew, uh, uh, Christians from the region of, um, uh, of Achaia and also then Macedonia, and they are taking knee, uh, uh, money. Paul wants to take money to go and meet the people in Jerusalem who are suffering. In other words, we should care about some of the persecuted churches in the north of Nigeria. Or if there are frontier missionaries that are going to unreach people's group, people groups, and you know some of them, we should care about supporting them. This is now our own generosity to the wider church. Or maybe you know some power church organizations that have blessed you tremendously. Some of those people are, only, in fact, most of those people are only just living on, based on the generosity of the others. That is in your second tier. And then third is that as followers of Christ, we also have a responsibility towards wider humanity. There are many non-Christian organizations that are doing tremendous humanitarian work in the world. Some of them are the best when it comes to disaster relief. You shouldn't say, well, because I'm only giving to the church. No. Unto all men. Sometimes you see beggars on the streets. It's not the first time for you to say, eh, maybe he was stealing. That's why they cut off his hand. Whether he was stealing or not, that man needs to eat that day, right? Bowels of compassion. So that's how it's distributed. But there's one more thing that comes with that structure, and that is accountability and integrity. Guys, in the church, if we truly believe what we say about the gospel, the gospel is coming to confront issues of sin and temptation. And we also believe that in the gospel that until Christ returns, we will not be perfected, then we better take sin and temptation very seriously. It would be a tragedy in this church, for instance, if I had everything that had to do with money, nobody could question me. I say, but the guy, I'm sure he's okay because the guy preaches, he preaches on integrity, he preaches on all of that. Forget it. What, this, what sin and temptation can do, it has brought down the best of men because they weren't accountable to anyone. So when we're building accountability structures into the church, we are making a spiritual statement. We are saying that no man is totally perfect. He can be tempted and even if put in the wrong situation over and over and over again, he will give in to that temptation. And so that's why, first of all, in the church, when things were established, what was meant to, who were meant to lead the church was not meant to be one person. It was meant to be a mature leadership. That's even why they are called elders. They are elders because, as the Bible says, an elder should not be a novice, a recent convert. Why? Because he may be tempted. Uh, he may be tempted. So it should be plural. And that plural eldership should then be given oversight over the affairs of the house. Now they can do this also with other people advising them. This is how community works. Now don't get me wrong, I've not moved away from a place of giving we should give, but at the same time, if you are given into a place where there are no accountability structures or non-reasonable ones, please don't give your money there. Seriously, don't. If you are given to a place where you're seeing that and you're seeing opulence upon opulence 
for, um, 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 being lived out by the leaders, then you have the responsibility to say, no, this isn't what God's money is meant to be spent on. Now, don't get me wrong. By saying accountability and integrity, I'm not saying that you must know every single thing. Accountability and integrity is not a means for big boom. Because some people, it is their curiosity. I like to know what she's being paid. It's not because I want, no. If there are reasonable accountability structures, like for instance in this church, right? Right now we have a management team because we have not fully transi transitioned into an eldership. So there's an external board that actually looks, approves, and, and checks all our budget. But we do have a local leadership that also has to approve locally for most of the important things. We also have a financial committee that actually works with the local leadership. We have a treasurer. All of these things are there. If you see that, then you don't have to know every single line item there. You know that there are mature spiritual people that are watching over that thing. But if you come into a system where, yes, we have some elders, but you have somebody sitting on top of the elders that is also sitting on top of the constitution, and so that person is able to change the constitution willy-nilly because God speaks more directly to that person than anybody else, that is a place and a recipe for disaster. So the systems of accountability to then see that these things are spent in the right way or given the right priorities becomes very, very important. Now, but don't get this wrong. The most important thing here is that at the core, we are talking about raising cheerful givers. The issue of how we give spontaneously and regularly and accountability and integrity are to preserve the goal of why you have cheerful givers. But they are not the center of things. Don't become an accountant and talk about just structure, structure, structure all the time. God is not trying to raise up cheerful accountants. But accountants are never cheerful anyway, so. Ooh, ooh, I, I love accountants, though. But God is raising cheerful givers. That's the identity. Are we meant to pay tithes as a system in saying 10%? No. But some, and God doesn't allow that because some of us should be paying 18%. 17%, why it gives the freedom for some people because of the season and stage of life that they are in to be able to give 5%. He wants us to specify the system that fits with us. And please, for those who are saying, hey, you see, I belong to the 3% or 4% category. If you are stingy now that you don't have money, if you did get money, you will continue to be more stingy. It's an identity thing. It's not what I have. So, if that is what they are to give, then the final question should be, where does their main motivation for generosity come? And that takes me to the third point. Why they give. Now, one of the things, the reasons for error, um, many times with certain kinds of doctrines in the church, one of the reasons why error can be very pervasive is one of, it's a very bad way of interpreting scriptures. And what do you do? Is that when the Bible, or not even just the Bible, just generally anything, when we have had, there's a variety of reasons for something, you stick to only one reason and make that reason the exclusive thing. So you are now less comprehensive with the truth. When you are less comprehensive with the truth, you would almost certainly be less true with the truth. That is, if various reasons are given for an, the occurrence of an event, if you focus on a single one, you would have problems. So, in this issue, for instance, I can identify about five motivations to give. If you use only one of them, 
Please, let me state again, you will be in error. So what are these five reasons? Number one, conviction. Why do I give? Because I know I am meant to give. Notice it says, you have decided in your heart. If you decide, it is because, by implication, you have understood that this thing is the right thing to do. However, if you focus on this alone, you may not care about accountability. That is, if you say, my own is to give, my own is to give. I don't, whatever they use the money on, that's their own business. My own is to give. Because you know that God has said that I should give. So, my own is to give. I don't care. Well, let them do their thing. That's, God will hold them accountable. Truly. But you do also have to hold them accountable. Two, reward. Notice, in verse 6, it says, people that sow generously will reap generously. In verse 8, it says they will be blessed abundantly. In verse 11, it says they will be enriched in every way. Now, if you know me, you know that I don't subscribe to the prosperity gospel. But at the same time, I like to be biblical. We can't remove those things from the text. You see, I have never met someone who is truly a giver who isn't blessed. Now, I'm not saying that the blessing always comes back with money. With money. It's not the only thing. But some of those people, in fact, it becomes almost like... Let me put, I put it this way. If you are God, you are not. Just, just, I know some people will try to convince you you are God. You are not God, all right? Is that okay? Yeah, you are not God. But if you are God, and part of the things you are trying to do is to show your generosity and to display your generosity throughout all the world, right? I want to give to this person. I want to give because it's the rain to fall on the just and the unjust. But you want to use human beings. And then you see Femi and you say, ah, it's Femi. Okay, let me give him. But Femi like, man, is this what to have? Is this what is this to have money? Ha! Those days I used to take blue band. Blue band. I've tasted anchor butter now. Ah! No. Those days I used to stay in City Lodge. But now I've stayed in five points. Ah! Life is good. So that Femi, what does Femi do? You give Femi blessings. Yes, he uses some of it. He can use some of it on himself, but he keeps all of it for himself. In other words, Femi becomes a blockage. He doesn't allow the blessings to flow to the others that you wanted him to, to take it to. But then you meet Toby. And as it's coming like this to Toby, it's just going in all different directions. It's coming like this, it's going in all different directions. Don't you get, if you are God, who will you give that money to? Toby. So in other words, Toby continues to bless people. Why? Because Toby is continually what? Blessed. That's why you meet some people for 20 years. You say, maybe they've died. You say, ah, as long as I've known this man for 30 years, he's been a giver. Well, guess what? If he has been a giver for 30 years, it's because he has been blessed for 30 years. That's the only way he can be a giver. That's why he says you will be enriched in every way so that you can be what? Generous. They keep being generous, so God decides to keep blessing them. But if you focus on this alone... If your focus is really, ah, so that I can get more blessed, then you are not a giver. And this doesn't apply to you. You see, if you have designed the system, ah, this means if I can keep giving, I'll be getting more. Then you're not thinking as a giver. Your passion is actually just to give. If you, are that, if you, are, if you only focus on how much you can get, 
then you are not a giver. This doesn't apply to you, which leads me to a third reason, passion. You give because you've been given to. So all of a sudden, you are a cheerful giver. It's what you want to do. It's part of your identity. You don't just give because you have to. You give because you want to. But if this is your only reason, you will not be able to sustain giving. Why? Because you won't always feel like giving. And that's where the fourth one comes in. You give because it's a commandment. Paul says, this service is one of obedience, verse 13. Because of this service by which you have proved yourself, others will praise God for the obedience. So some days when you don't feel like giving, obedience is there as a blessing for us to stop us from our giving ourselves to our spontaneous, well, I'm led this way or not. Giving is a commandment. Why do I give? God says we should give. Some days I don't feel like doing it, but God told us to do it. We recognize that we are not masters and lords. Obedience is a command even when you don't feel like, feel like it is a true sign of mature worship. Do you know, look, for people, some people say, no, 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 all these laws, all these laws, Christ has come. Somebody that says, I am going to do something even though I don't feel like doing it, but I understand that Jesus Christ is Lord, God knows better than me, and he knows better than emotions. Somebody that says, I will do it, not out of legalism, but because God has commanded me to do it, is a sign of a true mature person. But if this is your only reason, cheerful giving can turn into grudging giving, or you may be susceptible to manipulation. Because if people just use commands, this is the command God has told you, this command God, eventually you can be manipulated. And finally, thanksgiving. That's so glaring in this passage. Look at it, verse 11b. You, um, and through your, us, your generosity will result in thanksgiving to God. Verse 12 again. This service that you perform is not only supplying the needs of lost people, but it's also referring many expressions of thanks to God. Verse 13. Others will praise God for the, for the obedience. Or verse, um, verse 15a. Thanks be to God for this indescribable gift. You see, givers are also stewards. And as stewards, you acknowledge that whatever you're given, what is it that you have, what is it that you have that you have not been given, that Paul says. So in other words, you say, wait, oh, I've been all I have, I have been given. So a steward will be so jealous that if Dolakwa gives to Victor. Dolakwa will be so jealous for Victor to understand that it was actually God that was giving to Victor through himself, through Dolakwa. A, give, a giver and a steward is jealous that God receives the glory. But if this is your only reason, what if you don't see people thanking God? But instead, become greedy and they keep coming to meet you to ask for more but most likely you would also stop giving. So those are five reasons. But there's a reason that is more fundamental to all those five that ties all of those together. And what is that? Notice what Paul says in verse 13. Because of the service by which you have proved yourselves, others will praise God for the obedience that accompanies your confession of what? The gospel of Christ. In other words, we are convinced, point one, on the teach, motivation one, on the teaching that God gave the most indescribable gift of his son, on whom we anticipate the greatest reward, motivation two, 
on his return, which gives us immense passion, immense passionate love. Three, that requires us, four, to give as an act of thanksgiving to God. Five. Guys, don't you get it? Paul's fundamental motivation is that Christians give because God has given to us in Christ. That is the most indescribable gift of all. That is, it is an obedience that comes, it accompanies if you, your confession of the gospel of Christ. What is the gospel of Christ? That for God loved the world that he did what? He gave. His only begotten son. And so the way we become Christians, the way we get into this community of love is by the most fundamental and the greatest gift of all. So why wouldn't you be a giver? You see, it's because of this gospel, this supreme gospel reason that we should err on the side of generosity and not carefulness. We should err on the side of more, not what am I not to exceed. We should err on the side of surplus, not deficit. We should err on the side of being defrauded, not being cheated. Not, I don't want to be cheated. It's not a call for us to become foolish or carefree. It is a call for us to become radically generous. Why? Because of the gospel. And so when we think about this whole debate about tithing or not, yes, let's decouple all of these issues, and they are very important. Identity, uh, uh, the systems, and the structure. Especially the systems and structures, they're important. But then they fundamentally, God wants a cheerful giver, and those cheerful givers are cheerful because God has given them a gift that no one can take away from them. And so when I think about City Church, you know, I want us to be identified, City Church, not as the wealthy church or the wealthy place, but as the generous church or the generous place. Why? Because God loves a cheerful giver. Amen. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for the light that it brings. We thank you, Lord, that in the midst of so much confusion, you can come piercing us with the beaming of light and truth. Father, we know that in your church you are trying to raise people who give because they've been given to. Help us, O oh God, in this church and help our Christians here in Lagos in the midst of all these debates and confusion and antagonism and manipulation and deception for us to say we don't want to bring shame to the name of Christ and we bring shame to the name of Christ when we are coerced or when we are manipulated. But help us to return the gospel to the center of our giving. Raise us to be cheerful givers. We ask all of this through Jesus Christ, our Lord, we pray. Amen. Thank you for listening to the Gospel in Lagos. We pray you've been blessed by this message. To learn more about City Church, visit www.citychurchlagos.com City Church. Love Jesus. Love people. Love Lagos.